Good morning, I'm Barb Boylan, and our scripture reader reading today is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward them, him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that does lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Well, welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to have you here. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you can turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, if you're not there already, 1 John chapter 5. Well, first, I just want to extend my thanks uh, both to you all and to Dave for two weeks ago. If you were here, you know that Dave shared that I had thrown my back out in embarrassing fashion. My daughter was slipping off of a bleacher as we were at State Fair, and I went to catch her. She doesn't weigh very much, uh, but the angle that I turned out, I'm not exactly sure what happened. I threw my back out on Saturday, and I literally could not stand up on my own, and so I texted Dave um, that evening and said, hey, I hate to do this, but I'm going to need you to preach tomorrow because I can't stand on my own. And Dave uh, very competently and effectively filled in, and so appreciate him being willing to do that, and also appreciate all your prayers, um, support, and encouragement. Uh, we were gone last week as well for vacation and back this week, and so we're glad to be with you this morning. So excited to get back into the book of First John, where we've been now for the last several months. Uh, and as we come into this text this morning, uh, everything that John has been writing about in this epistle really culminated in the text that David addressed last week, which was 1 John 5, verse 13, which says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not wonder, not guess, not hope, but absolute confidence that you have eternal life. And the whole letter of 1 John really was written to this church in Asia Minor to give them that affirmation and that assurance that they lacked. Their faith had been rocked by the Gnostics within the church who claimed that their, that their hope in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ wasn't enough, that they needed something in addition to Jesus to have assurance of their salvation, that they couldn't actually know that they had God if they didn't have these additional gifts. And so John had been writing this entire book to lay out a case to build support for the idea that there was confidence to be had in their salvation. And to that point in the book, John had laid out all of the evidence. He'd given all of the proof. He had assured these readers, and, and by extension, he's assured us that our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ alone. And now he begins to bring this letter to a close. And he does so in verses 14 through 17 by pointing us to two things by pointing us to a benefit of our faith and an admonition in our faith. A benefit of our faith and an admonition in our faith. And he begins by saying this in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that is God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now John here is directly connecting verses 13 and 14. 
He, he's saying, because of what we know to be true in verse 13, that, that because of the faith that we have in the name of the Son of God, we have eternal life. He's saying there's an inherent benefit that comes from that knowledge and from that assurance. In other words, if God in His grace showed His love to such an extent that He was willing to provide eternal life through Jesus Christ, willing to give His own begotten Son this this Son with whom He had shared eternity past. Perfect, unbroken harmony and relationship for eternity. And God says, the sort of love that I have for that Son, I was willing to extend to you to the point that I was willing to give Him for you. That's His love, His passion, and His pursuit for you. And He said, if I showed my grace and my love toward you to that extent, then you can have absolute confidence when you come to me in prayer. And there are actually two subtle but deep truths that I think are held within that simple verse, and it's really just a point of emphasis, and I'll show you what I mean. The first, the first deep, subtle truth is this, that we have confidence in the very presence of God. Look at the beginning of verse 14. It says this, this is the confidence that we have toward him. And that phrase that's translated in our English Bibles as toward him is a very unusual phrase in Greek. It can be translated a few different ways, but according to many Greek scholars, what it literally means is this is the confidence that we have in God's presence. Now, for many people, when we think about the idea of being in the presence of God, the last word we would use to describe our posture is confidence. We may think of it in a positive sense as humility. We may think of it in a negative sense as, as fear, worry, concern about what God thinks about us, what his relationship is with us, what his posture is toward us. And there's good reason to have those thoughts cross through our mind initially. Because if you go back to the creation narrative, for instance, you find maybe the most profound illustration of what the presence of God actually does. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, God prepares the Garden of Eden for mankind. He gives Eve to Adam for these two to be counterparts, living and encouraging and worshiping with one another to live in perfect wedded harmony and bliss. And their purpose in the garden, their primary purpose for existence was to engage in the worship of God and obedience to God. And so they walk and they talk with him in the garden. He perfectly provides for all of their needs. He gives them free reign over all of creation. He gives them purpose and pleasure and fulfillment, both in their relationship with him and in their relationship with each other. But as soon as Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3, their posture towards God changed. And you find that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, which says this, And they, that is Adam and Eve, post-sin, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now just stop there for a moment and think, because this was not an unusual experience for Adam and Eve. From the dawn of their creation, they had heard God walking in the garden. And we're not even told exactly what that means or how God walks or how he displayed himself, but they certainly understood what that meant. And every other time they had had this experience of hearing him, it was a comfort. There was joy in their hearts. Something within them left alive at the presence of God. But in this particular moment, it says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
The relationship that had been designed for fellowship and intimacy and worship had been fractured to the point that it was now marked by disobedience and fear. And rather than confidence in their relationship with God and hearing him moving through through the garden and being filled with joy at the presence of their creator, at the love that they had experienced, at the relationship that they had, the personal, perfect intimacy that they had with God, in this moment, post-sin, they are filled with fear and they hide. And that fear, in a human sense at least, is a very natural reaction to who God is. Because when we are in our sinful state, when we are in rebellion and disobedience against God, and when we experience and encounter God, his righteousness and his holiness and his perfection is an affront to who we are. There is fear of being found out, of being exposed, of having our sin seen by someone who is perfect. And they, in that moment, weren't confident that God God either cared enough or had the ability to intervene in their particular circumstances. And I think that fear is the same approach that many Christians take when we pray. But the wonder of what John presents in this text is that Jesus Christ functions as our reconciliation and our restoration. In other words, through Jesus, perfect restoration of that relationship and reconciliation of that relationship has already taken place. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've been forgiven by him, if you have relationship with him, there is no more fear to be had in that relationship. As we talked about already in the book of 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. And that's the exact sort of love that God the Father has for his children. And our approach then, especially as we come to prayer, is not one of uncertainty or caution or instability. Rather, because because we've been given new life in Jesus and have been forgiven of all of our sins, we are now guaranteed guaranteed with the very blood of Jesus himself to have unhindered access to God and confidence rather than fear in his presence. So what does that mean practically? It means that when you go to prayer and when you talk to your heavenly father, you don't need to beg him to come into your presence. And you don't need to ask him to hear your prayers And you don't need to wonder if he was listening. And this is certainly something of which I've been guilty and something I've heard many other Christians wrestle with. They'll begin to pray things like, God, we ask that you'd come into our presence and come hear our prayers. Or we'd ask that you be with so-and-so today. Or, God, please send your Holy Spirit into this place. Or, God, we invite you to our time today and ask that you'd bend your ear to us. And what John is explicitly indicating is that God is not waiting for an invitation to join us. He does not need to be persuaded to listen. And he is not withholding his presence from us at any point We do not need to ask him to come be with us because in Christ, we have the presence of God already. This is what David indicates in Psalm 139 when he prays, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. 
I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. But the beauty of the nuance of this very simple phrase is that not only do we have confidence in the very presence of God, but because of Jesus Christ, we have confidence in the very presence of God. Do you see the subtle distinction? I tried to make it clear. Not only confidence in the very presence of God, but confidence in the very presence of God. In other words, we are not like Adam and Eve, cowering and hiding because of our sin. But since we've been redeemed and reconciled, we have boldness in the presence of God, according to Hebrews chapter 4. In other words, since he's our father, we approach him as father. So this week, we were up in Door County, and we went into one of our favorite shops, which is called the Confectionery in Fish Creek, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a straight-up candy store. And when we go to Door County, it doesn't matter what else we're doing or how many beautiful things we see or how many other places we're able to go. The only place that my children actually have interest in visiting is that particular candy store. And so we walk in there, and as you walk into that shop and look immediately to your left, they have an old-time clawfoot uh, bathtub that is filled with saltwater taffy. I mean, filled to overflowing. And so my daughter walks in and she walks over to that tub and she picks up one of the little buckets that you use to fill with candy and she picks up the scoop from the saltwater taffy and she just started scooping the saltwater taffy directly into the bucket, scoopful by scoopful. And I'm not even convinced that she likes saltwater taffy. But that doesn't keep her away from asking. And to use my kids as an example, there is nothing that my kids hesitate to ask me for. Nothing. They don't cower. They don't beg me to come into their presence hoping that I would deign to do so. They know that they have unlimited access and presence and they regularly take advantage of that to boldly ask for what they want. And if that's true of me as a sinful father, as a limited father, how much more true is it of a God who is perfectly loving and unlimited in his reach? See, this passage means that there is no moment of your life where God is not with you and does not hear you. That there is no aspect of your life that is uninteresting to him. And in the very same way that when my kids come to me and and share with me the the course of their, uh, their lives, there's nothing that they share that I don't care about. I mean, if they had a good day or a bad day, I want to hear about it. If they have things they're excited about or things they're worried about, I want them to talk to me about it. And as our Heavenly Father, God is intimately concerned with everything we experience. And this goes back to our conversation several weeks ago where we talked about this fake construction that we create between the sacred and the secular, between our sacred lives as believers where we gather as the church and lift up songs of praise and worship and read scripture or spend time in the word and devotions or whatever, it else, whatever else it is we happen to do, and then what we might consider as the rest of our lives, as if God is unconcerned with those things. No, he is intimately concerned with every detail of your life. And we find this idea all throughout Scripture. We find that God delights with us 
with gladness, that he calms all our fears, that he rejoices over us with joyful songs, according to Zephaniah chapter 3, that God is so enamored with you, that he is so delighted by you, that God himself sings songs about you. And that's not me making that up. That's, That's scripture speaking to the way that God views you. That God keeps track of all of our sorrows and collects our tears in a bottle, according to Psalm 56. That the hairs of our head are numbered, according to Luke 12. And that he's paying attention both when we travel or when we rest at home, according to Psalm 139. In other words, there is nothing about you that is insignificant to God. And because of that, prayer is not an empty gesture of religious devotion. Prayer at its root is conversation. It is you pouring out your praise and your love and your needs and your insecurities and your questions and your thoughts to a God who loves to listen. But the assurances don't even stop there. Verse 14 again, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So we are assured that he hears and we're assured that he answers every prayer. And that is contrary to the way that we often talk about it. There's a sense in which when we pray for things, we have a tendency to decide whether or not God listened or heard our prayer as determined by whether or not he answered in the timing that we expected and in the way that we expect. So when God answers a request and does exactly what I've asked him to do, we say, hey, God heard my prayer. He answered my prayer. But the truth of the matter is, for the believer, there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. The prayer may not be in the the affirmative, and the the answer to that prayer may not come in the timing that we would hope or expect, but he always answers. And the reason for that is that much like the relationship between a parent and a child, our understanding is limited. We see a very small piece of what's going on around us at any given time. And we do the best that we're able to do with the information that we have at hand to make determinations about what seems best or what seems appropriate or what seems most helpful. And with the information that we have, we often go to God and ask for him to intervene in a very particular way. And listen, there is nothing wrong with doing that. But part of the reason that when we pray, we often say things like, God, if it would be your will, we would ask that you do X, is not because we're hedging our bets in case he doesn't answer the way that we'd hope or in case things don't work out. No, it's an acknowledgement that our view is so limited and our assumptions aren't always right. And we don't always know what's truly best in a given situation. As one pastor said it, there is 10,000 things happening at any given moment, and maybe God lets us see three of them. And again, we see examples of this all throughout Scripture, and, and with everyday people like you and me, and with whom we might consider to be super saints. 
We see Paul, for instance, praying in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 after after having been bothered by a thorn in the flesh. We're not told what that thorn in the flesh was, but it was so substantial that it had become a matter of serious prayer for Paul. It was so disturbing to him, so distracting for him that he went to God and he said, God, would you please remove this thorn from my flesh? And the answer comes back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, as Paul writes it three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this. That word literally means to beg. He is on his hands and knees begging God to intervene in this particular way that seems best to his own limited human understanding. He says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, Even though God did not grant the thing that I asked, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you get a little bit of insight into exactly what it was that Paul was experiencing as you read that verse. Because when you look through the list of things that he says he is going to be content with, they are the exact sort of things that we would pray against. Weaknesses and hardships and persecutions and calamities. He says, these are all things that I'm praying that God would intervene in and change on my behalf. And yet, if it's by God's will that those things are allowed to remain in my life, I'm going to be content in it because in the middle of my weakness, there is strength because I'm dependent fully upon God's grace. And if that doesn't convince you, Jesus Christ himself has a prayer that is not answered in the affirmative. Because as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he's praying to his father on his way to the cross, he says this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus Christ's prayer was not answered in the affirmative so that you could have guarantees like you have in this text that God always hears your prayer. The means of your ability to go before God the Father, to plead your case, to ask for things, to pour out your heart, the confidence that you have in the fact that you are heard and answered is because of what Jesus Christ did. And all of that happened because a prayer was not answered in the affirmative. So even when there are things we pray for that are good and right, we always need to pray with the understanding that because God is good and is after our good and intends things for our blessing and our ultimate benefit, we can trust him. Even when the answer to our prayer is no. But likewise, we can be assured that when we ask in line with his will, he always gives us what what we ask. Now, having shown us the benefit of our faith, John's going to move into an admonition in our faith. And consistent with everything else that John has done in this epistle, he's going to connect prayer to a specific application of how we can love our brothers and sisters. We've talked about this before as the spiral of love in this text. John writes in a very unusual way. 
He talks about something and he moves away from it and he comes back and repeats himself and he moves away from it and he comes back again and that spiral continues, that spiral of love that if we have relationship with God, it demonstrates itself in our relationship with others and he shows that again in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this rather confusing couple of verses has led to all sorts of misunderstanding, and it's led to all sorts of theologies that have built up around what it actually means. But what immediately comes to mind for most of us probably is, what is this sin that leads to death? because I want to make sure that I'm not guilty of that particular one. Can we just get that out of the way right away so that we can move on to the rest of the text? And there are all sorts of answers that different people in theologies and churches have come up with over the years. So some traditions view sins through the lenses of venial sins and mortal sins. For instance, if you grew up in Roman Catholicism or if your experience has been within that tradition, that language will be very familiar to you. And venial sins within that tradition are viewed as the sort of sins that damage a relationship with God, while mortal sins are the sort of sins that destroy a relationship with God. So for instance, theft might be considered a venial sin in that tradition, something that damages one's relationship with God, but of which someone could also be forgiven whereas murder is considered a mortal sin, something that quite literally may not be able to be forgiven by God. And the problem with that sort of view, in my understanding, is at least twofold. First, it doesn't account for what Jesus says in passages like Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where he writes, specifically talking about murder, you have, heard it's, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, in the economy of God, in ways that we don't quite understand, while sin may have different consequences, humanly speaking, in the eyes of God, all sin is cosmic rebellion against him. It is a declaration that we, and not him, are in charge of this universe, in charge of our own lives, and accountable only to ourselves. And since we have, in those sort of sins, violated and rebelled against the God of the universe, we are liable for the results of those sins. But secondly, and maybe more germane for our discussion this morning, I think an answer like the one that Roman Catholics would give to this question is disconnected from the context of 1 John. In other words, I think the actual answer to what is the sin that leads to death comes from the specific controversy that John himself is addressing in this letter. If you remember the context of the letter, the Gnostics had come in and said, yes, Jesus is great, but he's not actually the Messiah. Not in terms of his actual personhood. He's not actually the Son of God. A great and wonderful person, yes, but he's not actually God. And John has made it clear in a number of verses that the difference between those who actually know God and are redeemed by him and those who, are, who do not know God and are not redeemed by him is what you believe about Jesus Christ. 
In other words, if you claim to love Jesus but deny that he is God, you're not actually a part of the family of God. And therefore, according to John, this sin that leads to death is the sin of denying Jesus Christ. What is the one sin? What is the one sin that isn't forgiven as a Christian? Not being a Christian. He's making a distinction here between those who do and do not actually know Jesus Christ. And to believe in Jesus Christ, to be saved by him, to place your faith in him, is to experience the forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future, and to receive eternal life from him. But if you deny Jesus Christ, if you deny that he is God, if you deny the necessity of his work for salvation, there is no forgiveness in that. And so John's instruction as he addresses the Christians of Asia Minor is, listen, don't pray for these Gnostics as fellow Christians because they're not Christians. It's not as if they're true believers in Jesus Christ who are guilty of some random sin needing of correction. They don't know Jesus at all and thus have not experienced the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what they need is not is not spiritual correction. What they need is spiritual resurrection. But, says John, as he lays out a very common scenario, let's say that you were to see a fellow believer struggling with sin in their life. They're a true believer in Jesus. They know Jesus, but they're sinning and they're disobeying God. For that person, says John, you need to pray. And that answer seems so simple and at times doesn't seem like it's quite enough. But this prayer, says John, is so effectual that you can be assured that God will intervene and continue to lead that individual on the path to life. And this is an important but underestimated aspect of prayer because it reminds us of both what we are to do and what we are not to do when we see brothers and sisters fall into sin. And it's really an attitudinal difference. See, the tendency of many Christians is to view themselves as the sin police. My job is to constantly have my eye on you and when I see you astray, my job is to change you or fix you or convince you my job is to put you on blast if you don't respond the way that I like. But whenever the New Testament addresses this idea, the call is never to judge or to punish, but rather to restore. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, and not only restore him, says Paul, but restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That when brothers or sisters are in the middle of sin and we see them in the middle of sin, our attitude is not judgment or how could they or who do they think they are or how dare they or what terrible people they are. Our spirit is to work towards restoration with a spirit of gentleness, with an attitude of humility, so that we ourselves are kept from falling into the very same sin. And I think this text in 1 John and the text that I just read from Galatians are sisters in a way. Because here, John says that my responsibility when a brother or sister is sinning is to pray for them. And why that answer? Well, I pray 
Because the same God to whom I'm praying is indwelling that fellow believer. In other words, the Holy Spirit always works through conviction and restoration and not through condemnation, always. And we talked about this at length several weeks ago, the difference between conviction and condemnation, but conviction from the Holy Spirit always leads us to restoration. It always leads us on the path of grace. It doesn't lead us, lead us further into ourselves, into self-hatred or self-loathing or self-abuse. It, it leads us on a path of grace and restoration. And I pray not only because the same God to whom I'm praying is indwelling that fellow believer, but I also pray in order to keep my own attitude and my own heart humble. Because when I make too much of my role in the life of somebody else or presume a role that only the Holy Spirit possesses and I do not, inevitably what I'm going to do is put myself in the place of God and open myself up to sin. The sin of judgment, the sin of Phariseeism, the sin of pride, the sin of gossip. And third, I pray because I am assured, according to this text, that God will answer affirmatively and restore. Assured of it, promised it, guaranteed it. And that is an amazing thing that we, we give short shrift to. There are a whole lot of prayers in our life that, 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 that we are not guaranteed will be answered the way that we ask them to be answered. But, but there are a few that we are guaranteed of. James guarantees us, for instance, that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give wisdom. That he responds to that request in the affirmative every time. And this text is another one of those. That when you see a brother or sister sinning, you pray for them because in and through that prayer, in ways that we don't understand and can't comprehend, God uses the prayer of the saints to lead on, uh, on the path of life, brothers and sisters that we are able to walk alongside brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin, confident that because they belong to God, he will in fact intervene, convict, and restore. And I think the reason we don't always go to prayer first is because we assume it's either too passive or too ineffectual. In other words, at the very root, we assume we can do God's job better than he can do it. But if we not only are commanded to approach brothers and sisters this way, with this sort of love and in this attitude of prayer, and by the way, that would be reason enough, we are also assured of its effectiveness. And to do otherwise is to rob God of his glory and his timing. See, just the same way that we assume God has not answered our prayers just because he hasn't answered affirmatively, we also assume that God's timing just isn't quite right. He's not working quite quick enough for our comfort. And therefore, it's us, up to us to make it happen. But I would ask this, how much more healthy and helpful would we be as Christian brothers and sisters, if we stopped trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit and instead trusted the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do and in the way and the timing that he would deem best. See, to trust God with the hearts, lives, and behaviors of fellow Christians is to remove the burden from your own back and place it onto the only back strong enough to carry it. 
and that is God himself. But listen, you can only do that if you believe that God is good. And if you believe that his timing and not your own is always better. You see, brothers and sisters, in prayer, we have at our disposal the tool of communication and communion with the God of the universe. The God who not only sees and knows the future, but is in the future. A God who is not limited in the ways that we are limited, who understands what is going to work best for his glory and for our joy, and yet we let that tool of prayer lie untouched, or worse yet, try to use it to manipulate and cajole and force his hand. I want to close this morning with a quote that I have found so helpful and so encouraging because it addresses the very heart of what prayer is. How does one, how does one try to reckon the idea that our prayers actually have some sort of effect on a God who is sovereign? How do those two things work together? And the human answer, at least as far as I can tell, is I don't know. To guess at understanding the mind of God and how he determines what he's going to do and, and how prayer plays into all of that is far beyond my comprehension. But one theologian said it this way, prayer feels small, if we're honest. In one sense, prayer is small. Just one person praying. But one person praying, according to scripture, can summon all the armies of heaven one person praying, listen to this, has the very attention of God. One person praying can change things. One person praying is enough. So brothers and sisters, the guarantee that we are given in this text is that prayer is not some sort of magical reality but it is communication with an infinitely powerful and infinitely loving God. A God who is present, who listens with intensity and concern, whose hand is not shortened, whose ability is unmatched, and who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, as you go into prayer, that you are heard. That the God of the universe has bent his ear and will ongoing to the cries of your heart. And with that in mind, let's pray together. God, we thank you that we don't need to beg you to come into our presence. That we're guaranteed that you're here and that you're with us that you listen and that you respond. God, that even when the answer to our prayers isn't what we'd expect or what we'd hope for or done in the timing that we would ask, that your answer is always better because you are a good and loving and perfect father who only does what is best for his children. And God, we admit that that is an easy thing for us to say and often a hard thing for us to believe. But I pray, God, that as we approach you in prayer, 
that we would come to you with all the confidence in the world that you are concerned with, the both, with both the biggest and the smallest happenings of our life, that there is nothing about us, no concern or anxiety of our mind, no celebration of our heart that is, that is not of concern to you, that you celebrate with us and over us, that you sing songs about your love for us, that you are smitten in the truest sense with your children. And God, we can't even imagine why, but we know that your love runs that deep and that it was demonstrated perfectly through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we thank you that we get to pray for brothers and sisters, that the burden of changing others does not rest with us, and therefore we can approach others without judgment, with hearts of compassion and care and tenderness and honesty, trusting that you will do in their hearts what we cannot do. So keep us from falling into sin, even as we pray for others who are struggling. And God, help us to pick up the tool of prayer, to use it in every moment in every area of our life, because we have the assurance that we are heard and that you answer. And help us to trust that you always know and do what's best. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.